Every year, during the Wimbledon, crime surges. While Londoners enjoy the sport, cat burglars, especially in neighborhoods like Mayfair, go on a theft rampage. If anyone could provide fresh thinking to an embarrassing situation, it was Buster Lee's team from International Investigators. Photographed upon arrival at Heathrow, Buster Lee, Joan Reynolds, and Beck, now dubbed the new guardians of Mayfair by Fleet Street, were unfazed. As was typical when traveling overseas, Buster Lee's team arrived early. Beside acclimatizing to the time difference, Buster Lee and Joan wanted to see Highclere Castle. Cookie O'Neill, head of the New Scotland Yard, and an old chum of Jones joined them. On the train after the castle tour, guests were invited to the beverage car. Cash only, please. The beverage car, as stylish as the Lusitania, filled up fast. Guests were kept happy by a small band of nimble, often sassy waiters. Joan and Cookie O'Neill ordered lemonade. And as corny as it was, Buster Lee had a pot of tea. Wagging his tail, Beck sat on Buster Lee's lap and looking out the window, appreciated the lovely English countryside. When the train approached King's Cross, Buster Lee left the beverage car to get his jacket and umbrella. On his way, Buster Lee saw a tip sitting on a table not yet cleared. Turning his head, Buster Lee spied a thin stranger in tortoiseshell sunglasses nip the tip off the table. What a rat. Buster Lee expected this kind of bad in New Jersey, but in the home of Moneypenny and Lady Di? As the train grew close to the station, the crowd, in anticipation, bunched up behind Buster Lee, making it impossible for him to rebuke the crook. Was this a harbinger of things to follow? The Mysterious World of Buster Lee Presented by Adam Ive Guardians of Mayfair. At 8 a.m., Lady Reese was frustrated. After looking for earrings, the 70-something matriarch of one of Britain's oldest families wept. She flicked the switch on the intercom and said to her butler, Gladstone, Can you bring me a G&T, please? Lady Reese drank nothing but doubles. Gladstone the butler made two drinks one for her and one for himself. He placed the drink for Lady Reese on a silver tray and took the lift five floors up to Reese's walk-in wardrobe. Gulping down the gin and tonic, Lady Reese said, I don't know what I'd do without you, Gladstone. Reaching into one of some 40 jewel boxes, Reese's eyes widened. Although she never talked about World War II, when she was 21, Joan Reynolds was at Bletchley Park. Yes, that Bletchley Park. The one with Alan Turing, the man who cracked the German Enigma code, the man who, by some estimates, saved two million lives on both sides. 
Turing was also considered to be the father of artificial intelligence. Joan was sent to Bletchley Park as part of an exchange policy between the United States and Great Britain. She was never told what she was doing there other than playing crosswords and sometimes chess. As for Turing, Joan used to go running with him. Beyond that, they seemed to have nothing in common. He was a strange sort, but we digress. Stepping off the train and grabbing a quick dinner downtown, Joan said to Cookie O'Neill and Buster Lee, even though I'm interested in sports and crime, would it be all right if I took Beck to Bletchley Park for a few days? I know he likes the English countryside and I have a friend up there I'd love to visit. Looking at his watch, Buster Lee said, it's up to Cookie, I guess. Picking up Beck, Jones said, it'll only be two days, right? Besides, you know what a great time we had at Bletchley Park, Cookie. You worked with Joan at Bletchley Park, said Buster Lee. Aye, Buster Lee, said O'Neill. We've known each other that long. Every year with Wimbledon, Cookie O'Neill's phone would not stop ringing. We've tried everything, Buster Lee. I've sent every available team to Mayfair. Still, we're flooded with calls about stolen paintings, stolen rings, stolen heirlooms. Someone even reported a three-wheel Morgan from 1966 was stolen. Affixed to the walls of O'Neill's Scotland Yard office were death masks of some of England's greatest criminal minds. Frederick Baker, Gwyn Evans and Peter Allen, Albert H. Wigan, Charles Ponzi, Nick Leeson, the list went on. Buster Lee stopped a breath away from the death mask of a Rasputin-looking character and said, Jack the Ripper? No, said O'Neill. That's the Yorkshire Ripper. Listening to the miniature grandfather clock in O'Neill's office, Buster Lee stopped on his feet. Based on intuition, the young buck said, I wonder if it's more organized than we think. Raising a finger and opening his mouth to speak, O'Neill's thoughts were interrupted. Commissioner O'Neill, I have Lady Reese on the line. When he was a teen, Simon Fleming, the son of a baker, joined the force and became a police constable. Given he looked like an NED, Simon worked low-level stuff like burglary, car theft, and general surveillance. It started all right. After all, he wanted to help people, and he wanted a meaningful life. But at 25, he was crestfallen. He was going nowhere, and he knew it. Without hope and purpose, Simon began lending small amounts of money to his childhood friend, Danny Crisp. If ever there was a shady character, Crisp was it. It wasn't long before Danny Crisp got in over his head. Feeling bad on the promise he'd be paid back more than he loaned, Simon began advancing Danny even larger sums of money. By day, Simon worked as an undercover police officer. At night, he drove Danny around London, picking up and dropping off all kinds of things. Soon, Simon himself was 30,000 pounds in debt and seeing no way out like a politician, a lawyer, an accountant, a physician, or a jungle animal. He crossed the line. He took a huge bank loan and funded Danny, who was by now far more than a petty thief and pickpocket. This went on for months. On his last run, a striped car with flashing lights pulled Simon over. After poking around, two officers, younger than he, 
slapped handcuffs on his wrists. Danny Crisp was nowhere to be seen. After attending the police station, Simon Fleming was photographed, fingerprinted, and put on suspension with full pay and benefits until his trial, some three years in the future. No longer working with time on his hands and under Danny's influence, Simon met many unsavory characters. Some of these underworld types wanted Simon to show them how Scotland Yard worked. Others wanted to pay Simon to be their eyes and ears at the airports and border crossings. And some, like 36-year-old Mesop Caracas, wanted to talk, buy Simon a drink, be his friend, and maybe more. Darn, if only Simon could remember the name of the pub where he and Mesop were to meet. Oh well, he had two days to remember. Bletchley Park is the epitome of ordinary. That's what Joan Reynolds wrote to her brother when she saw it for the first time in 1943. The men are eccentric and unkempt, and the women, although sweet, are obsessed with chess, checkers, and number games. As for me, she wrote, I spend hours playing crosswords, and although I like it, it's getting long in the tooth. Who would have known the activities of Bletchley Park would, in hindsight, have saved millions of lives? Not 21-year-old Joan Reynolds, not in those days. Other than observing a pact between the British and the Americans, Joan wasn't sure why she'd been plucked out of a typing pool in Rockefeller Center and jettisoned to Bletchley Park to do crossword puzzles. Now, 40 years later, she knew why she returned to Bletchley, to surprise her dear old Bletchley chum, Walter Love. Although she hadn't talked to Walter since coming home, over the years she wondered, what if? You know, if she and Walter still clicked. After speaking to old Bletchley employees and getting nowhere on the Walter Love Trail, Joan took Beck to the Cat and Mouse Cafe, long a favorite of the Bletchley crowd, for a sandwich and time to think. Finished eating, Joan quizzed her young waitress about Walter Love. Alas, the fair fawn was too young to be of help. Surprisingly, on her way out of the cafe, an elderly lady in a walker stopped Joan. The woman said, I heard you talking about Bletchley to the waitress, and I shouldn't, but I used to work there during the war. Did you? No, of course not, said Joan, lying. I don't suppose you would tell me if you did, said the woman. But I remember the planes growling overhead at night. It was terrifying. I knew Turing, too. Joan looked around. We should talk, said Joan, outside. Ambling through Whaley Drive Cemetery, the women spoke in hushed tones. As I understand it, said the lady with the walker, after the war, Walter was an electrician. His wife passed away, and he became a recluse. Last time I heard, he was an experimental musician, fiddling with tubes and all. He was living in Park Gardens, two up from here. Shall I take you? No longer on active service, 
there were some habits Simon could not break. On his way to meet Mesop Caracas, Simon saw a teenager holding a wrench about to steal a bike. In his most quiet, stern, and police-like voice, Simon leaned into the boy's ear and said, Unless you want me to take you to the big house and throw the key away, I don't think you want to touch that, mate. The boy, knowing a thing about undercover police, stuffed the wrench down his pants and hot-footed down the crowded street. Minutes later, Simon saw mess up, who sported mud and chops and was wearing a yellow jacket and white bell-bottom slacks, enter the pub. For those who keep track of this sort of thing, the bar, um, excuse me, the pub, was called Abby's. Simon went in and introduced himself to Messup, who said he worked for Legoland, a nickname for MI6. Don't worry, Danny Crisp told me you're suspended. One good copper is it now and then. All that matters is that we're on the same side, right? Messup was a real city boy. When he paid for a round, he flashed wads of cash. I'll have a scotch and my young friend here will have, what will you have? Simon pointed to the rum, and my friend will have one of those too. Once the bartender set down the drinks, Messup asked Simon about police tactics, surveillance techniques, and if Simon was in a relationship. It was an odd but not unusual question. Lawmen were always getting married and divorced, and everything had implications when you were fighting crime. On that topic, Messup explained he had been through a devastating divorce, and that's why he became a thief. Having a second drink, Simon held his glass, making a toast. Looking at Messup, Simon said, It's all insured, right? A couple more drinks, and Simon spilled the tea about a series of fur and jewelry heists he and Danny Crisp did last year when the matrons of Mayfair were at Wimbledon. Feeling confident after their afternoon pilfering through the exquisite residence of Mayfair, Simon and Danny hit Larson and Madison Jewelers and walked out with a hundred thousand pounds of wedding baubles. Messup and Simon roared with laughter. Had I known it was this easy, said Simon, I would have never become a copper. Having bonded, as bandits do, Simon and Messup put together a plan that would have them stage another hit on Larson and Madison this year during Wimbledon. Why not, said Messup. It's the last thing they would expect. As they left the Abbey, they joined a small crowd of sports types, looking in the window of the electronics store next door. Everyone saw John McEnroe melt down like a crybaby. While the crowd was aghast by the American tennis player's antics, Simon spied something new from the corner of his eye. Rotating on a stand beneath a light, used to catch a buyer's attention, was a curious black device the size of a paperback called a personal computer. What on earth would you do with that? At the intersection, Simon saw two thugs break into a black Healy. He would have done something, but you know what? Simon didn't lift a finger. He said goodnight to mess up, and they went their separate ways temporarily. Although the events are not related, after seeing John McEnroe slaughter Chris Lewis at Wimbledon, Buster Lee met with Dr. Leonard Cross, one of Britain's most respected psychiatrists. Dr. Cross published many books, appeared on dozens of television shows, and maintained a posh office in St. John's Wood, London. There were cut tulips in a vase in Dr. Cross's waiting room, 
which reminded Buster Lee of the flowers in the lobby of the Nebraska. Flowers aside, there was a serious subject ahead. Beyond movies, TV shows, books, and the occasional newspaper article, Buster Lee never came face to face with a dyed-in-the-wool rogue cop. He wanted to know what pushed a man across the line from civility to moral vacuity. When he entered the room, Buster Lee found the doctor grounded like a Tibetan Buddhist, fingers in the shape of a steeple. They exchanged polite nothings, and Leonard Cross said, When an officer crosses the line into crime, he becomes no different from any other predator. He sheds his goodness and goes for the loot. In that state of mind, any crime is possible. Once caught, however, the man will always say, I made several bad personal decisions. I'm a good person overall, though. Bewildered, Buster Lee never thought the lives of rogue cops were that empty. They spoke for 50 minutes. Buster Lee put the money on the table, and he said goodbye to Dr. Cross. Buster Lee felt he was ahead of the curve, if only by a little. At a phone booth on the street, Buster Lee called Joan Reynolds. He wondered what was happening at Bletchley Park. With Beck warming her American bones, Joan reached Walter on the phone that night. Expecting Walter's voice to have dropped given age, Joan was delighted how spry he sounded. Joan set up a date for a drink tomorrow. With the lights off, supine on the bed, holding back close, Joan wondered if Walter was the one who got away. For a moment, she saw herself settled in with Walter, spending her last days living in a cottage on the North Norfolk coastline. On Thursday, the night before the Larson and Madison heist, Simon had a panic attack and called mess up. I'm freaking out, I can't go through with it. They talked some, but there was no changing Simon Fleming's mind. Hanging up, Simon looked at the newspaper on the bed. The headline read, 30,000 pounds of life-saving medicines pinched. Messup called his mama, which was code for his boss in New York. After talking with mama, Messup moved ahead with tomorrow's plan. By Saturday, Simon kept hearing about the Larson and Madison heist. 377,000 pounds of diamond rings gone. 377 pounds of diamond friggin' rings. That's a lot of rock. On Sunday at 5 p.m., Simon met Messup Caracas at the Abbey again. Envious of the size of Messup's hall, Simon admitted his regret. Fear not, said the MI6 agent, pinching Simon's bony shoulder. We're planning a heist this Sunday. There's 500,000 pounds in meds waiting to be pilfered. Imagine what it's worth in China. Simon swallowed dryly. On his way to the restroom, he thought what he could buy with that much loot. I could leave. I could move to California or Seattle. With that much money, I could leave this forsaken country. Coming back from the loo, Simon looked around the corner and saw three officers from the standards department. Simon went to school with one of them. Like a mouse in a maze, with no options other than forward, Simon breezed forward. Buster Lee put his hand on Simon's shoulder and said, Are you Simon Fleming from London Police Service? Simon bowed his head. I think that's him, Commander. 
Thank you, Busterly, said Cookie O'Neill, the head of New Scotland Yard, before turning his attention to Simon. You, Simon Fleming, are under arrest for conspiring in theft over 500,000 pounds. Handcuffed before, Simon offered no resistance and brought his wrists together in a way that resembled something pagan. On his way to the paddy wagon, Simon looked at Messup, who patted him on the shoulder and said, Sorry, old bean. As you may have guessed, Messup Caracas was not from MI6, but rather was an undercover officer on loan from the 5th Precinct in New York. His real name was Brando Kowalski. Raised in London as a boy, Kowalski's posh London accent was exacting, but after all of his time in New York, kind of fake. After the film The French Connection was released in 1972, it was common for police forces around the world to exchange officers on sensitive or complex operatives. At Simon Fleming's trial, the judge called him every kind of deplorable he could think of. But, Britain being mild on criminals, Simon was sentenced to three months. A year later, Simon moved to Sacramento. Despite his brief cha-cha with jewel theft, and expressly because he had, for the most part, been a fine police officer, Simon was put on a fast track to become a U.S. citizen. While attending numerous meetings at Immigration and Naturalization Service, Simon met Elijah Water, who became his caseworker. Eventually, a fondness developed between the two. Still, Simon, once a newly minted American, worked for Open Society Foundations, helping refugees immigrate. As planned, the day before, Joan went to Cat and Mouse Cafe at 7 p.m. The place was half filled, the fire burned. Nervous, Joan took Beck with her. She found a table near the hearth, and Beck curled up below. On her third cup of tea, Joan wondered what happened to Walter. She called him three times from the payphone by the restroom, but he never answered. The waitress, a young lass, came over. Looking solemnly at Joan, the girl said, Do you mind if I sit down, miss? No, not at all, said Joan. Do you know what ghosting is? Looking up from her teacup, Joan shook her head. It means you've been stood up. I've been ghosted before, said the waitress. Most people have. Pouring more tea, Joan said, Ghosted? Yeah, said the waitress. You've been ghosted. Clearing her throat, the waitress said, Did you sit by the hearth because you wanted to or because you were asked? Looking at the embers, Joan said, I was asked to sit by the hearth. Standing up, the waitress said, I don't mean to be rude, but she's not coming. She does this four out of five times. You've been ghosted, miss. But, said Joan, you must be mistaken. I'm expecting a man. Is the man named Walter? The waitress said. Joan nodded. Walter the musician, around 70? The waitress paused. Look, she said. Walter is a Wendy now. She's too embarrassed to see you in person, is my guess. Crestfallen, Joan slowly picked up Beck. She held the little blue healer close for comfort and stepped into the windy night in Bletchley. 
denouement. Entering the beverage car on the train with Joan a week later, Buster saw the thin man with the tortoiseshell sunglasses who stole the tip when he first came to London. I know who you are, and I saw what you did a week ago on this very train. And what did I do, Buster Lee? said the man with an educated Manhattan accent. How do you know my name? said the stripling. I'm from NYPD. I'm Sergeant Brando Kowalski. I'm an undercover cop. I know your mom. I've been reading about you since you came on the scene. I wondered when we'd meet. Is back your doggo here? What brings you to London? Did you see Windsor Castle? I know the food is terrible. You've been listening to The Mysterious World of Buster Lee, presented by Adam Ive. Mystery World theme by Oliver Wickham. Follow us on Instagram. Go ampersand pod underscore planet. For show notes and merch, go to podplanet.org. Special thanks to Tattoo Sound and Music. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee is written and produced by podplanet.org. Thank you.